Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law from Australia and around the world. Terms and conditions apply. They always do. But the government is looking to crack down on unfair terms and conditions in these take-it-or-leave-it standard form contracts now. And G&T partner Charles Corey is here to tell us what that means. The sense we get with this reform, more than any other reform I've actually encountered, is that clients are anticipating it, your competitors will be anticipating it, and so you don't want to be the regulator's exemplar case for the year when all your competitors have fallen into line because they're on top of it. So don't be left behind. We'll hear more about that in just a minute. But first, Matt, tell us what's happening around the grounds. Well, as a movie fan, I have to mention that the ACCC is looking at Amazon's plan to buy MGM, which is the movie studio that was formed back in 1924 by the triple merger of Metro, Goldwyn and Louis B. Mayer Pictures. All your worlds have come together, Matt. Is that the one with the lion? That's right. The current lion is called Leo, but he's the eighth MGM lion after previous lions, Slats, Jackie, Bill, Telly, Coffee, Tanner and George. And you might have seen him at the start of the new James Bond film. So is Amazon allowed to buy James Bond? Are all his gadgets going to come in massively oversized cardboard boxes from now on? (laughs) Yeah. And with the pricing algorithm, he'll be 00699 from now on. (laughs) Oh, very good. (laughs) But actually, uh, although MGM distributes the Bond franchise, it only owns half of the copyright in it for complicated reasons. And it's not the half that makes all the creative decisions. MGM does have a bunch of other stuff, including Rocky, which is probably the most successful sports movie franchise if you don't consider illegal street racing to be a sport. Are there any football movies on that list? Are we counting American football? Uh, What do you think? Yeah. I mean, Bender Like Beckham did pretty well. Better even than Sylvester Stallone's World War II football film, Escape to Victory. Have you seen it? Yes. It it stars Michael Caine and also Pele. Pele, yes. None of those are a patch on Ted Lasso. Believe. But the ACCC won't be looking at any market for sports movies, will they? No, it's not really worried about film production at all. There are still lots of film studios. MGM is now one of the smaller ones, unfortunately. And Amazon is even smaller on the production side. The ACCC will be looking at Amazon more as a video streaming service. And it's asking for views on whether MGM would bring any must-have content to the deal whether Amazon might foreclose that content from other streaming services or even cinemas, and whether that's really a problem given all the other options that are available. Would the ACCC also look at this from an e-commerce perspective? Yeah, absolutely. Amazon's video service, of course, is part of its prime membership and loyalty package. And the concern would be that MGM might just give customers one more reason to buy their pandemic toilet paper from Amazon instead of somebody else. So the hipsters at the Federal Trade Commission must also be looking at this. Yeah, they are. Amazon, of course, has asked Lena Khan to recuse herself from anything that involves them since she's been such a prominent critic of theirs in the past. But I think she might have put that particular petition in the old circular file. Well, if she has Prime, they might be able to return it for free. Yeah, I'd be surprised if she had Prime, but you never know. What else is happening? The ACCC has taken Tectonic Industries Australia to court for resale price maintenance. In this case is about the supply of Milwaukee brand power tools, which include everything from bandsaws to rotary hammers. And the ACCC is alleging that Tektronic maintained resale prices 97 times over six years. I've got the concise statement here. It says that Tektronic really put the screws to its distributors and hammered home that if they took a chainsaw to their prices, it wouldn't all go well for them. Sounds like they knew the drill. <laughs> they did. And Tektronic knew the drill as well, because a couple of years ago, 
It sent quite an outraged objection to a resale price maintenance notification that Stanley Black and Decker had lodged and which the ACCC eventually revoked. So it used to be that resale price maintenance was prohibited outright and you couldn't even get it authorised, right? That's right. Authorisation became available after the Hilmer Review in 1995, but it wasn't ever granted until 2014. That's when Tool Technic argued successfully that it should be allowed to set the resale price of the power tools it distributed in order to prevent free riding by discount suppliers on the efforts of its full-service resellers. And Tool Technic isn't the same as Tektronic. Technically, no. And ever since the Harper Review, you've been able to notify the ACCC of resale price maintenance, which is a less onerous process than authorisation. And Tool Technic also lodged the first one of those in 2018. So have we got any resale price maintenance that doesn't involve power tools? Not that much. I guess the argument is that power tools really need that extra before-sale service that setting a minimum resale price can help to protect. Oh, is that what the blokes say? Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't want to buy a hammer drill when you really need a rotary hammer. Uh, Aren't those the same thing? Look, I've got no idea. But there is the US case that recognised the potential benefits of resale price maintenance and kind of kickstarted this whole current wave of interest. That was Ligon Creative Leather, and it was all about belts and handbags. Hmm, powered dressing, maybe. Yeah, that must be it. And finally, the ACCC has approved Turnitin's acquisition of our original, despite having some preliminary concerns and putting out a statement of issues with a couple of amber lights in it. This is the one about plagiarism software. That's right. Turnitin and our original are international providers of anti-plagiarism software, overlapping in the supply of this software to secondary and higher education customers. Anti-plagiarism software is used by educational institutions Uh, to scan student assignments on submission to identify... Wait, wait. This is sounding very familiar. Are you plagiarising our old episode where you plagiarise the ACCC's press release? Actually, I'm plagiarising the ACCC's new press release, but it is quite similar to the old one. Yes. In fact, I ran it through our original software, which has a handy free trial feature, and it found that 50.5% of the new press release was recycled from the old one. <laughs> well, you're allowed to plagiarise yourself, aren't you? That's just efficiencies. Yeah, or well, sometimes it's callbacks. Anyway, the new part of the press release explains that Turnitin is already the dominant anti-plagiarism software provider in Australia. Our original has a minimal presence here, and there are a lot of providers who are better placed to enter the Australian market, including Google and Microsoft. And since original isn't really driving innovation particularly, the acquisition wouldn't substantially lessen competition. They didn't seem too impressed by our original at all, did they? They didn't, so maybe we should take that 50.5% with a grain of salt. Thanks, Matt. Well, now to our deep dive. I sat down with Charles Corey, who's a partner in the Competition and Regulation Group here and one of our experts in consumer law. He's been looking at coming changes to the regime around unfair terms in standard form contracts. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this one. I mean, I sign a lot of these things or or click on them more often these days, and I'm never sure what's going to happen if there's something unexpected in there. Let's take a listen. I'm very pleased to have with me today Gilbert and Tobin partner, Charles Corey, also an Arsenal supporter. That's possibly what he's best known for in the office. Welcome, Charles. Thanks. We're always proud to be known as the Guno with the best women's team in England. Fair point, fair point. Although Sam Kerr might have something to say about that before the season's over. But we're here to talk about unfair contract terms and not whether Sam Kerr's paid enough, but consumer contract terms. And there's some very big changes looming here in Australia. 
That's right, Moya. You know, we'll get into this, but there's going to be penalties introduced into this regime. The scope of the regime will be significantly expanded to cover more small business contracts. And so it's something that's generating a lot of interest for all of our clients. Indeed, indeed. Well, before we get into the changes, I'm wondering if you could just give us a bit of a thumbnail about what the law is now. So at the moment, what the law does is say that if there's a term in a standard form contract that is unfair, a court can declare that term unfair. And as a result of that, the term will be void. So the law sets out a bit of an explanation as to what might constitute a standard form contract. But one of the important points is that it's a rebuttable presumption. So a contract will be deemed to be standard form if it has a few of these features, such as it's offered on a take-it-or-leave-it basis, it's been drafted by one side in particular without any scope for negotiation, and that side has significant bargaining power. So I feel like you've said something very important there, that these terms, unfair terms, can be declared void. So they're not actually illegal in the first place. Is that right? That's right. And we can get into this as well, but that's been one of the reasons why there's been a push for change, that these terms aren't illegal. The most that can happen at the moment is that a term will be declared void, but for that to happen, someone has to take the company to court. So if I'm an in-house counsel and I've got a consumer contract, I would say to my CEO or my board, look, there's a clause in here that arguably is unfair. But don't worry too much because if it is unfair, we will hear about it from people who want to take us to court or who complain to the ACCC to claim that it's unfair. And the worst that's going to happen to you is that it will be declared void and it will be of no effect. But you're not going to go to jail or get a fine over it. You won't go to jail. You won't get a fine. There's the possibility of some compensation orders being made if if loss can be established, but that puts a really heavy burden on the party who would bring the proceedings because they would need to quantify the loss and weigh that up against the costs and time of actually bringing the matter to court. So the ACCC has taken some proceedings and there's been a, a number of cases, but not a huge number. But if the ACCC gets involved, they can flex their muscles as a, as a regulator and they are looking to do that actually in a really broad range of circumstances. And that's one tip we've been giving to clients that the ACCC has taken an interest in unfair contract terms in a broader range of inquiries than people might initially think. And one great example I can give is in the wine grape grower market study. So the ACCC was, was interested in how wine making companies treat grape growers because typically there's contracts between them that wine companies aren't typically vertically integrated so they don't always grow the grapes themselves and the ACCC was receiving a growing number of complaints from grape growers that the wine making companies were treating them unfairly and so the ACCC conducted a market study And it was one of the highlights of my career giving the ACCC a tour around my client's winery in McLaren Vale. It was a dry tour, despite being a tour of a winery. While the tour with the ACCC was was dry, I did come home 
from McLaren Vale with a few of their good bottles at the end of it. I notice he's emphasised it was dry several times there. I think I'm not sure if you're protesting too much, but anyway, I think during COVID we would have taken a dry tour anywhere just to get out of the house. Correct. So it sounds like there are some obvious weaknesses in the current regime, but given its constraints, the ACCC does try to lean on industries in various ways to try and make it work notwithstanding. They're covering the field and not just using typical enforcement powers and enforcement action to get the outcomes that they want. They're using market studies, inquiries to get these outcomes and implement industry-wide change at the same time. So now we are faced with a raft of reform proposals. What has led to the push for these reforms? So there's been a Senate inquiry, Moya, into the effectiveness of the unfair contract term regime. And that came about as a result of lobbying from the ACCC. We also understand complaints from small business and consumers as well, that the existing regime was ineffective because while the ACCC was getting some outcomes, it still needed to take some form of action, do something to get those outcomes, whether it was a market study, an inquiry, or enforcement action in a court. And the main reason why the current regime was regarded as ineffective is because the outcome was just that the terms would be void. Is there something too about the way we're entering into contracts as well? I mean, you know, we've all gone online much more and on phones as well. I mean, often if you're buying a t-shirt on your phone, you know, and the cart is ticking down, you've got two minutes to check out, you might not have the best look at the terms and conditions that flow with it. Yeah, it's a really good point, Moya. While one of the elements of the law has always been the extent to which a contract and its terms are transparent, that does become more of an issue when so many more Australians are purchasing goods, not just online, but as you say, on their phones. It's an obvious statement, but your phone screen's obviously a lot smaller than even your laptop screen, and it's much harder to fit terms and conditions in there. And we all know that a lot of companies just want you to, to tick a box that says, I've read the terms and conditions and, and I agree to them, and the terms and conditions will be hyperlinked, but very, very few of us click on that hyperlink, let alone read through all of the terms and conditions. So let's turn to the actual amendments now that are proposed. Take us through the changes. What are the biggies? Yeah, sure. So the main one is the one we've just been discussing, that terms will move from being void to being illegal. And so the draft exposure legislation that was released in August of this year says that a person will be prohibited from entering into applying or relying on an unfair contract term, and that each term will be a separate contravention. And so the significance of that is that for each contravention, more penalties will apply. So it won't just be one penalty because this contract has unfair terms. The penalties will apply to each term. That's a big shift. I mean, if you're in-house and advising your board, you actually have to say, this is against the law. This is a breach. And if someone signs off on that, then they are signing off on the, a breach of the law, which, which no one can do. Correct. No board can do that and no, no CEO can do that. So that's a very big shift in perspective as to how advice is given and applied. But the penalties are pretty gargantuan as well. Those of us who, who follow the Australian consumer law will know 
you'll be following the ACL penalties. All right, go on, Correct. go on, Gunnar, tell us. So those of you who follow will know that the ACL penalties are now aligned with the penalties for contravention of the competition law provisions in the Competition and Consumer Act. And so just as a quick reminder, the penalties for each contravention will be for a body corporate, the greater of $10 million, three times the value of the benefit, if you can calculate what the benefit is, or 10% of the annual turnover of the group of companies during the preceding 12-month period. So when you think about what that could be for a large group of companies or if there are multiple contraventions because there might be five, six, seven, eight terms in a contract that are unfair, you are looking at some pretty significant penalties. You can rack up a bill pretty quickly. Exactly. And so this is the exact deterrent effect that the ACCC is looking to have in place to, to address that point that you raised, Moya. Like, what's the incentive for companies here to actually put in fair terms if they're not going to be taken to court and hit with large penalties? So tell us a bit more about the remedies, because I understand there's some flexibility there. There are potential civil remedies and non-parties can even score a remedy. Tell us about that. So actually, there's always been a little bit of scope for that in the existing regime, but one of the proposed changes will be that in addition to the existing regime, the court may make orders it considers appropriate to prevent or reduce loss or damage that has or may be caused. In addition to that, the new proposal also says that a court can injunct a person from entering into future contracts that contain not just the same terms, but substantially similar terms. And so what that might mean is a real question. And the court can also injunct a person from applying or relying on a term in an existing contract that is the same term or, again, substantially similar. So there's some real questions that arise in a broader context that companies now need to consider given the increased breadth of orders that a court might make. There's another interesting feature too, I understand, around after a decision is given, a set of rebuttable presumptions arise that give decisions more of a precedent value perhaps than they have had in the past. And for business, in a way, that gives more certainty, right? But tell us about that. Well, you're right. Like I'll start with the certainty point. One thing which companies actually do want from regulators and courts are really clear decisions. This is the value of precedent. And the, the rebuttable presumption here is that if you have this term in one contract, it will be considered unfair if you've used it in other contracts. And because it is a standard form contract, it's likely to be in multiple contracts. So a rebuttable presumption is a little bit like starting one nil down, isn't it? I mean, you have to do something, otherwise you're going to lose. Correct. And this is the way that the current law is drafted and it will be the same when these changes come in, that you can only fall within this regime if your consumer contract or your small business contract is standard form, but all someone has to do is to allege that it's a standard form contract. And then it is the rebuttable presumption that applies. And so it's up to you as the drafter of the contract to prove to a court that it's not a standard form contract. 
There's also an issue around the small business threshold, isn't there, Charles? I understand that the definition of consumer or or the consumer laws came to apply to small businesses a few years back. In other words, there was a view that small businesses needed to be protected from big businesses, so they got some of these consumer protections as well. But the threshold is even changing again. It is. That's right, Maya. And so this is really consistent with what we say has been a a long-term push now to make small business the new consumer. So when the unfair contract term regime was first introduced, it only applied to consumers. But then as part of actually Tony Abbott's election campaigning to become Prime Minister, he stuck a, a carrot out there to small business by saying, if you vote for me, I'll extend the unfair contract term to also apply to small business. And when that extension was introduced, the definition of small business was a business that has fewer than 20 employees and either the upfront price payable under the contract was less than $300,000 or it could be a million or more if the contract was longer than 12 months. But what's going to happen if this draft exposure legislation is implemented as it is, is that the definition of small business will significantly broaden. So rather than 20 employees, a small business will be a business that has fewer than 100 employees or an annual turnover of less than $10 million. So a really significant change. And of course, they might grow over time as well as contracts are turned over. So we have to remember 50 is the new 30, <laughs> Arsenal is the new Rockdale, <laughs> and, and small businesses are the new consumer. What do lawyers need to do about it? If, you, if you've got a bunch of these contracts uh, sitting in your contracts register and they're being used day in, day out, uh, what do you do? One of the first things you would do is if you're talking about small business contracts, it's probably worth now starting that due diligence to get a sense of, are there any more small businesses that you contract with who are now going to fall within the scope and have the protection of this regime? Because that that might take a little while. So doing that DD at this stage would be a good thing to do. But then it's a matter of going back and looking at these terms and with your commercial colleagues, forming a bit of a risk profile as to what terms you think can still be justified and that you're prepared to take a, I'll call it a risk, but you might not regard it as a risk. You might say it's a considered assessment. I would recommend making sure that you get ready in your back pocket all of the arguments you might need to rely on in case another party, a consumer, a small business or the ACCC alleged to you that this term was unfair. And what I would also suggest is recording the reasons why you're making those changes. It's a good thing to do to have contemporaneous records of why you've done certain things in case a year down the track, two, three years down the track, you're asked to explain why you did or didn't change your terms. So things like automatic renewals or indemnities that uh, customers provide you or termination provisions, perhaps unilateral variation rights. Those are the sorts of things that you might want to hold up to the light and just check that it's all all going to be considered reasonable and justifiable. I think that's right, Moira. And maybe the, 
the final thing I'll, I'll say here is that we anticipate that most companies will be really quick to make the changes that they think they need to make to comply with the law. And so you don't want to be left behind. The, the sense we get with this reform, more than any other reform I've actually encountered, is that clients are anticipating it, your competitors will be anticipating it, and so you don't want to be the regulator's exemplar case for the year when all your competitors have fallen into line because they're on top of it. So don't be left behind, get in early, get in quickly, and get in effectively. Thanks, Charles. Well, it might not sound like the most exciting job in your in-tray, reviewing uh, contracts for unfair terms, but it's certainly one of the most important with these impending changes coming up. Not as exciting as watching Arsenal's women's team, I'd have to say that, Charles. Big right. shout out to the Aussies who are there. Goody Williams, Steph Catley, Caitlin Ford. Yeah. Uh, you've got a big fan here in Charles Corey, partner at Gilbert & Tobin. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks very much, Moya. Well, that was really interesting. And I guess it's another example of what Peter Waters was saying last time, the way that legal standards are becoming more subjective or more to do with ideas of community expectations while piling on these potentially massive penalties. Yeah, I'd like to think that when lawyers are drafting these things, that we'd always have one eye on what's fair and what's in line with community expectations. I mean, clients have to think about their reputations and so do we as lawyers, but now we'll really have to pay attention to it. Yeah, it's a big stick, all right. And we'll see what happens with that legislation next year. Okay, but that's not everything from your crystal ball, surely. What else are you seeing? Well, as you know, the consumer data right has been growing across the banking sector for a few years and now lets you share your own banking data for most products and from most banks. So I can give that data to another bank or a comparison website or app and maybe find myself a better deal. Yeah, that's the idea. And the rules have just been changed to add the energy sector to the framework starting in October 2022. So then you'll be able to do the same kind of thing with data about your energy use and the different plans that might be available. And even combine that with your banking data, you know, so you can make sure you've got enough in the bank to pay for your next energy bill. Yeah, or work out what you're going to do with all that money you're making from rooftop solar, perhaps. Exactly. And then telecommunications will be the next cab off the rank. Treasury has done a sectoral assessment and has recommended that product and customer data across that sector should be included in the consumer data right. Hmm. So maybe then I'll be able to work out whether I really need all these gigabytes of 5G or whether I can get away with slightly fewer gigabytes. So can it tell me whether I really need that new phone with the better camera? Well, maybe that'll be the next cab off the rank. Well, maybe cabs will be the next cab off the rank and they can tell me where I left my new phone with that better camera. <laughs> Let's hope. Now, everyone will have heard by now that our old colleague, Liza Carver, has been appointed to the ACCC as a commissioner from March. She'll be taking the space that Sarah Court left when she went to ASIC. And of course, Liza was an associate commissioner to the ACCC back when they had those, so she'll know her way around. Yes, indeed. Liza's got quite a track record against the ACCC too in competition law litigation, from the AGL case back in 2003 to the more recent TPG Vodafone case. Yeah, and she knows how to win a case, and it'll be interesting to see if she can help the ACCC with the kind of things they've struggled with in court in the past, like proving an understanding or a counterfactual. Or maybe these things are really easier to disprove than they are to prove. So, of course, this is all adding to the speculation about what's going to happen when Rod Sims' term as chair runs out next year. Yeah, do you think our chances of being invited to the ACCC chair's Christmas barbecue might have got slightly better? <laughs> well, I don't know. It'd be off a low base, wouldn't it? <laughs> 
Remember, you can find relevant links in the show notes. And this is our last episode for this season and this year. We'll be back next year for season two and we're lining up some great guests for you. And I'm coming up with some more stupid jokes. But if you enjoyed today's episode or this season, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends. We guarantee they'll love it. Not a guarantee. So until next year, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin.